Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, as our state hurries to administer the COVID-19 vaccine, some Coloradans are still unsure about receiving it. I've had issues with other vaccines or I had one bad experience with the flu shot. Now I'm not going to get any shot. Coming up, we'll learn more about a task force trying to fight misinformation and a lack of trust in the vaccine among some communities of color. That story and a whole lot more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. The COVID-19 vaccine rollout is still on track. That's according to Governor Jared Polis, who said at a press conference on Tuesday that the state is still on pace to vaccinate 70 percent of Coloradans over the age of 70 by the end of the month. But as more and more people receive the vaccine, many are still unsure if they want to get one. At that press conference Tuesday, Governor Polis invited two Latina Coloradans over age 70 to share their experiences getting the vaccine. Here's Linda Sosa. I feel safe now, you know, as when I get the vaccination, I don't feel anything, any reaction, no pain, uh, no nothing. I'm so happy that I have the opportunity to get it. Medical workers have also noted a lack of trust in the vaccine among some communities of color. So to build trust in it and dispel misinformation, a group of medical leaders created the Colorado Vaccine Equity Task Force. We're joined now by Dr. Ozzy Granardo, a member of the task force and the chief diversity and inclusion officer at Centura Health. Dr. Granardo, welcome. Thanks so much for inviting me today. I want to ask you first, why was the Colorado Vaccine Equity Task Force established? The great folks at Immunize Colorado and Stephanie Wasserman recognized that there were issues with vaccine uptake or the rates of people being vaccinated for any vaccines in communities of color. And so they wanted to make sure that that was going to be addressed in a way that was very thoughtful and inclusive of, really, people who represented the communities that we were targeting. That was maybe a couple months before the COVID vaccines started to come out. And so it was nice timing in that respect to have that group ready to start looking at the COVID vaccine. You mentioned that some people in communities of color are hesitant about getting the vaccine. What are some of the reasons for this? There's a variety of reasons. A lot of it is around either discrimination or issues with research and trust in government that communities of color have stemming from the Tuskegee trials or the Tuskegee experiments to any number of data points that really suggest black and brown peoples in the U.S. get different types of care as compared to others. The other piece is sometimes access. And we know those communities have less access to providers and see those providers less. If they don't have a good source of medical information from someone that they trust, well, then who are they getting that information from? So if they're getting it from social media or any number of other places that could have misinformation, 
that's another source or reason why they could be hesitant. Now, I want to talk about some of the disparity in the numbers. There's certainly a higher proportion of white people who are getting vaccines in Colorado compared to people of color. According to statewide data, Hispanic Coloradans have gotten 5% of the vaccine doses, despite making up about 22% of the population. And when we look at Black Coloradans, they're at about 2%, despite making up about 4.3% of the population. Now, do these disparities come down to what you were just talking about? or is there something else? You know, that's a piece of it. This is really multifocal in terms of where we need to look and why it's happening. So there's an information piece as to getting over that hesitancy. So it's it's finding someone who is going to be able to deliver information that is coming from a trusted source that people believe. And so once someone gets to the point where they say, yes, I'm actually ready to take the vaccine. We have a supply issue. The demand is outstripping really our supply at this point, not only in Colorado, but the whole U.S. So the question then becomes, when that person is finally ready and has overcome any number of issues with really feeling like they want to get the the shot or the vaccines, it's then where can they get it from? Are people getting the invitation for getting a vaccine through email? Well, if you're not working on email or you're an essential worker and you have other roles that don't focus you solely on your computer, are you going to get an email to get that invitation? For those Latinx communities, is that information in Spanish for those who are native Spanish speakers or for any of the other communities of color that we have? So a lot of this is, are they getting the information in a way that really people can act upon and then go get the vaccine in a timely manner. Let's talk about what the task force is doing to build trust among communities of color. What kind of conversations or strategies are you finding most successful? Yeah, so the strategies I think we're finding most successful are are the ones that are happening between trusted community leaders and the people that they work with, serve, or live with. In the task force itself, either being one of those trusted community leaders or working with those community leaders to give them the information that they need to make a decision on whether or not to get the vaccine themselves or not, and or then then promote that to others has been really one of our bigger roles. What are your personal conversations like with people who might be skeptical about getting the vaccine? Yeah, so it ranges. So I'm a family medicine doc and it ranges from I've had issues with other vaccines or I had one bad experience with the flu shot. Now I'm not going to get any shot or I don't trust what the government is pushing. If the government is pushing to get flu shots, I'm not going to trust it. I've run into that. I've run into people who say, remember Tuskegee. I don't want to go through that. And so it's really trying to take everyone's individual response as to why they may be hesitant and really trying to focus on providing them accurate information that really reflects what is going on and what we as a medical community believe. To me, the goal is to have everyone immunized, but but the work that we're doing is to really provide the best information we can so that people can make their own decision about getting the vaccine. It's interesting, too, that we're hearing about some of these disparities or the hesitancy has been showing up among healthcare workers, too. At Centura Health, where you work, Black workers were 44 percent less likely to get vaccinated than workers who are white. Latino workers were 22 percent less likely. I'm wondering what that 
tells you that these disparities exist even for healthcare workers? It tells us a lot. It tells us that, you know, there's still those thoughts or processes that are going through people's heads and hearts around either discrimination or past issues with the research that was done and then sometimes access again. Want to get your thoughts on how successful has the task force been so far? I think we've been able to do a lot of work with a variety of different organizations in terms of getting the message out. There are other people who are getting the message out. And so part of this is how can we be a part of the solution and collaborate with people on this and not duplicate efforts, but enhance efforts when necessary. So I think we've done a good job with that. We'll see in the numbers. Part of our work is hard to define. How do we calculate the number of people that we've touched or talked to who are now ready to get a vaccine? That's a difficult number to, to really take into account. Dr. Ozzie Granardo is a member of the Colorado Vaccine Equity Task Force and the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Centura Health. Thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thank you so much again for inviting me. It was great to talk to you. As vaccines are rolled out across Colorado, health experts have noticed a glaring disparity in the number of Hispanic and Latino people receiving the shot. Advocates say it's partially because members of those communities can't always be reached with the same messaging developed for the broader population. Alex Hager visited a Roaring Fork Valley group working to fix that. We've all had to give up so much since the pandemic took its hold on life almost a full year ago. Now, vaccines line the path back to the things we've had to go without. For Rifle resident Edith Lemus, that means a trip to see loved ones. I want to see my family. I want to hug my family. You know, I haven't seen my grandbaby for a whole year. So to me, it's, that's, the, that's the main reason. I want to be with my family. You know? Lemus is one of hundreds getting vaccinated at a special clinic in Glenwood Springs. She was grateful just moments after getting the shot. I feel blessed. Honestly, I do. Because I know there's a lot of people out there that are waiting for it, you know, and I'm like, I got selected pretty fast. The clinic was set up by the nonprofit Voces Unidas as part of a special effort to inoculate the Latino community. The governor's office worked with organizations across the state to help bridge a gap that's left those people behind. While Latinos make up more than 20 percent of the state's population, they've only gotten 5 percent of vaccines. Alex Sanchez, who runs Voces Unidas, says that problem starts at the top. There's not a lot of Latinos designing public health programs or designing strategies that governments are leading because we're not in a lot of those seats. And so oftentimes, the end result is that we fall a little bit behind. Um, And we're the last kind of customer, the last client to actually tap some of these benefits, and government struggles to do that. He says that's also partially because of the way many Latinos in Colorado are left out of the healthcare system. Many of our community members don't have health insurance or don't have a private doctor or don't have a primary care physician or are not part of insurance plans. Therefore, we don't we rarely get the same information that those of us who have privilege by having insurance get or by having a private doctor get. 
As a result, this outreach, in partnership with the state, is focused on reaching Latinos where they are. That can be as simple as direct text messages and targeted Facebook posts, but it also means using informal networks of communication, like spreading the message at a church, or a series of radio ads in the style of radio novelas, stories with relatable characters. For example, two peers in the community coming to a local store talking about the local priest and how the priest and the pope have actually taken the vaccine. That kind of messaging is exactly what's needed to encourage trust in the vaccine. Although it's been widely proven to be safe, surveys have shown high levels of skepticism about the shot, even among minority groups that have been hit the hardest by COVID-19. Edith Lemus says among her friends, there's worry the vaccine could come with harmful side effects. I really haven't spoken to not one that's excited about it. They all have their doubts, you know? Yeah, it could be good, but what if? You know, and I, I, I was the same. I was in the same boat. Lima said, ultimately, the benefits outweighed the risks. I'm like, why not? You know, I mean, we're all going to die one day anyway, so might as well, right? <laughs> and if it helps me to live longer, why not? And there's proof that she's not alone in wanting to get the vaccine. The 200 appointments for the Glenwood Springs Clinic filled quickly. Blanca Uceta O'Leary is with Voces Unidas and volunteered to help run the clinic. We asked, like, are there, do you have a hesitancy, any questions? And I said, nope, nope. Everybody's like, you know, they'll tell you, like, you know, I have arthritis, I have this, I'm taking this, you know, blood pressure medicine. And so we talk about all of that. But outside of that, no, nobody has, everybody's just grateful to be able to get the vaccine. Not only are they grateful for the vaccine, but Uceta O'Leary said they're also thankful for one more unique touch of the setup in Glenwood Springs. I do not know how many vaccination event, um, uh, locations has Mexican ch- hot chocolate and tamales. We have three types. People are thrilled to be here and then in the waiting area with, you know, covered up, socially distanced, you can eat a little tamale real quick too. But once those tamales are eaten and 200 vaccines are administered, Voces Unidas leaders say there's a lot more work to do. Local nonprofits are just scratching the surface when it comes to fixing health inequity, and they say there's a long road ahead to make sure public health is serving the entire public. Alex Hager, Aspen Public Radio News. listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. In 1957, three years after the United States Supreme Court ruled segregated schools unconstitutional, a group of nine African-American students integrated Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. They were met with a mob of angry white segregationists who disrupted the students' attempts to attend class for several days, ultimately requiring the presence of federal troops to get them into school for a full day. One of the students was Dr. Melba Patillo Beals, who went on to become a successful journalist and college educator. She wrote about her experience as part of the Little Rock Nine in her memoir, Warriors Don't Cry. And on Wednesday, she will be speaking with the Fort Collins Rotary Club for Black History Month about her experiences. She joins us now to discuss her life story, the current age of misinformation, and the role of youth activism in addressing racial issues here in the U.S. Dr. Melba Patillo Beals, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you for having me. When you and your eight peers were going to integrate Central High School for the first time, what was going through your mind? What did you see and feel and what do you remember? If you want to talk about just prior to the point at which we approached a mob, 
we were excited. We, we talked about it. We thought that it would be a new area for us. We did not think we'd be welcomed at first. There was certainly indication by mobs that had gathered on the days before that this was not the place we'd be welcomed. If you're 15 and 14 and 16, you think that in time, they will see that I am human. They will see that I polished my saddle shoes. I got a long ponytail too, and I'm bright. And so um, I have always thought of myself as bright and able to take care of whatever came up academically. So I thought, okay, there'll be this initial period. I expected to hear the N word every now and then. What I did not expect was to see a mob carrying a rope, telling us off the bat that they were gonna kill us, that we were not gonna be going in their school. Now that very first day we didn't get in, a mob chased us. I only got to across the street from the school directly in front of, huge mob. At first, my mother and I came up behind this mob. We didn't even know what's going on. We thought, ha perhaps it's great to welcome us or what's going on, you know? And we got chased out of there with uh, these guys with their ropes and almost got killed that day, almost got hanged. And I said, oopsie, you know, this isn't quite what I thought it was gonna be. That made me totally rethink Central High School, going to Central High School. I thought, do I really want to do this? But now there was a lot of pressure. There was Martin Luther King. There was all of these people in the NAACP surrounding us. We were now, for all intents and purposes, little individual stars who were being interviewed by the press, talked to about our obligations, that kind of thing. So off we went for that second try. Second time we were were escorted into school by police. And that was the time that we stayed a half, we didn't even stay a half day, like up till noon almost, because outside were uh, just an incredible crowd of people. Our first day in the school that we were able to stay all day was with the 101st Airborne Division, all carrying unexplainable equipment to me in their starchly pressed uniforms, hundreds of them around, helicopters overhead. This was the scene I had only seen on television. And here I am in the middle of it. So how did I feel? I was frightened to death. I wanted to ask about some of the pressures that you mentioned and the adults even trying to talk about what your obligations were as a 15-year-old student and all of your peers too. Was that easy to take in as a 15-year-old? No, it was very difficult because I wanted what all 15 years olds want. I wanted to go to the dance. I wanted to go play with my friends. I wanted to be a normal girl. It does not feel good as a child to be called names all day. This was a painful, awful experience that really I could only talk to with the other of others of the nine. One historian has said that out of the nine of us, five or six are directly blood related. And so all we had for that period of time really was the consolation of each other. And I actually called my friend Carlotta, who has been my friend for, oh, let's say 73 years or so every few days now. So we were all very close. We all became closer. There are now eight of us left. We're all grandmas and grandpas with gray hair like me. And uh, we still are tight, meaning when we come together, it's as though there were no time lapse between our being together the last time. All of this that happened in Little Rock, how did that affect your appreciation of education? In my family, it's the only way out. My mother made it really clear when I was young Education is your only key out of the door as a Black person. I was adopted, as you know, by a white family, Dr. and Mrs. George McCabe. So my adopted father founded Sonoma State University, 
So I went from one home of educators to another home of educators. My father and mother were Quakers. That white set of parents, my father wasn't going to see me bring home a, a B or a, a, like anywhere my mother was. So it was like, go from the, you know, one house to the other. He was insistent that I go to college, graduate. And so there, in my life, there is no discussion. My children will tell you, there is no discussion that doesn't include how's your homework, how's school, what classes are you taking? Uh, look, could I see that piece of paper, please? Well, I wanted to ask a little bit about journalism. Since your days as a student, you became a journalist and a professor of journalism. And today we're kind of living in a time where, for some reason, many people are doubtful of facts and they dismiss large swaths of the news media as biased. Do you have any thoughts as a journalism professor? We just went through a really rough period. When you have leaders who support lying, when you have leaders who live in a different world reality, you have a problem. So we have many people who chose to follow that. I support journalism as our only pipeline. Do, do, do you pick one station and listen? No. I read the New York Times. I listen to CNN. I listen to MSNBC. I listen to uh, Fox. I look at everything. And then you as an individual have to decide. But you see, in order to spend the time to do that, you have to understand that you cannot look at some stupid thing on the internet and say, okay, that's who I am. I'm QAnon. I'm whatever. And so people do that because they don't take the time to understand the significance of, of, of the proper news. For anyone to stand around and say the things that some of the people are saying in the internet, it's, it's embarrassing, it's scary. What difference is there between the mobs that rampage Central High School and the mobs that rampage the Capitol? That was so scary to me because I'm one of those people. I know how the people in the Capitol felt because I've been the victim of a mob before. I've been standing in line waiting to be hanged. I've been in a building, Central High School, where the mob lunged forward to the building. And that first Monday that we were in school, that mob got in that school and chased us down the hall, spat on us, et cetera, et cetera. So I understand. One hopes at this point we can listen to each other and try and heal. I don't know if you would consider yourself an activist, but I wonder how you view youth activism when it comes to some of these issues that you were speaking about. I want youth to, like when I taught, I only retired as a professor in 2014. And when I taught, one of the things I insisted on was that the children and my own children be watching the news every day. You got to know what's going on around you. That's the first thing of activism. And then you got to participate. Of course, I'm an activist. Uh, not long ago, John Lewis passed away, before he passed away. I have actually on my Instagram, this picture of him standing behind me and I'm in a wheelchair because I had four spine surgeries. And he looked at me and said, hey, Melba, you ain't got time to be sick. What are you doing in that chair? You better get up and get with it. So we don't really have, I don't have time to not be an activist. Every day of my life, I'm right now thinking about the 22 election. What should I be doing? Calling people? Are we going to write letters? What are we going to do? Uh, let's get going. Let's, you know, can I do anything for, with that? Who's not being nice? You know, who needs boycott? What's going on? I mean, you got to be with the program until I'm dead. You know, as the mortician marches out and sets my toes afire, I hope to be called an activist. I'm angry because I couldn't march further with Black Lives Matter. I was moved by that. First of all, I was put in three weeks of depression by the death of Mr. Floyd and the way he died. I'll never forget that white policeman's face 
as he bent that knee in, as though he had power. And that's the same power I felt white people had over me when I lived in Little Rock under Jim Crow. Exactly the same power. You have the power to put your knee on my neck and press it until I die if you want to. And so for me, I cried, had to go see a therapist. I was hysterical. And I loved the marches that went on after that because when we were in Little Rock, we were so happy when the white people marched with us because it meant the cops wouldn't shoot into the crowd. The white people who marched with us were our protection. Now here you have life has moved forward because Black Lives Matter. There were more of our white sisters and brothers on the streets than us. It was a beautiful thing. And to me, it was the one big bit of evidence that we have moved forward. Other than that, at 79, I'll tell you, at 15 or 16, I thought, you know, by the time I'm 50, we, we won't, by the time I'm 79, I will be in a wheelchair, a rocking chair someplace, rocking back and forth happily, knitting, watching TV. We won't even be discussing this. I won't have anything to do. I'll be a bored girl. I'll watch the evening news, cook pies. I mean, come on, who knew I'd be going to, I'd go to more activism meetings a week. I go to church three times a week on now on Zoom, but I'm saying I'm as active as I was when I was 20, just in a different way, you know. I would have bet you that it would have all been solved by now because this is 65 years, come on. But we're nowhere near solution. So it demands that we continue to work. That was Dr. Melba Patillo-Beals, one of the Little Rock Nine. Her memoir about her experience integrating Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, is called Warriors Don't Cry. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, with the start of the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump, we speak with a professor who's using it as a teaching opportunity. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.